One year after the murder of Ahmed Arbery set into motion the historic 2020 uprising against racism, the fight for justice continues for him, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so, so, so many others. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's March 2nd, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent show by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We can do it with you, but not without you. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther E. Varum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther is also the host of the radio show, On the Ground, at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. The trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd, begins this week. Meanwhile, Donald Trump delivered a major speech to the CPAC right-wing political gathering, where he pledged revenge against disloyal Republicans. The uprising in Haiti continues against the U.S.-backed president's power grab. Biden abandons the fight for 15 as the stimulus bill makes its way through Congress, and the U.S.-Iran confrontation grows as Iran says enough is enough. Brian, where do you want to start today? There's a lot to talk about today. We have a really great show. I also want to give a quick preview of our plans for the month of March. Before I do, I want to say a word about how and why we produce this show three times a week. We are the socialist program. We are bringing news, analysis, history, political economy, and socialist theory every week. We are also organizers in all the struggles of the people for justice, opposing racism, war, militarism, and more. We are partisans in the struggle of the working class. The myriad problems people face in society on all levels are tied to the system of exploitation, to capitalism. We are fighting for a new system. We do this show without any advertisements, obviously without corporate sponsorship. We rely 100% on people becoming patrons to the show. Some people can become a patron for a large amount each month. Most can only afford a small amount. We need patrons, subscribers, and supporters. If you consider this show important, you should help keep it going by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. And as we say, we can do the show with you, but not without you. In the second half of today's show, we have an amazing interview with Professor Mohammed Mirandi. He talks to us from Tehran, where he lives and teaches. If you want to understand what's coming next in the U.S.-Iran confrontation, this interview is extremely useful in understanding the real politics of what's unfolding. Wednesday, we'll have another important conversation with Professor Richard Wolf, as we do every Wednesday. This week on the issue of so-called intellectual property rights and why they constitute such a deprivation of rights for the working class. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about what's coming Thursday and the rest of March. This Thursday in our segment called The Real Story, I'm going to be doing a deeper analysis on Syria. Of course, we've all been talking about Syria since Biden bombed the country last week. We've been reacting to the news, but we want to do a deeper dive. We're going to talk about why the U.S. is actually occupying and bombing Syria. We're going to examine the evolution of U.S. strategy towards Syria over the past 15 years. And we will examine the political and class character of the Syrian government led by Bashar al-Assad. We'll talk about Syria's relationship with Russia and Iran and its larger role in the Middle East. 
And then for the whole month of March, the rest of the Thursday segments called The Real Story, we will devote those shows to a deep and overarching review of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. This will be a comprehensive series on Iraq. We'll talk about why the U.S. actually invaded Iraq in 2003, why the U.S. invasion ultimately failed in the face of Iraqi resistance, the U.S. role in the creation of ISIS, the largely untold story of mass resistance to the war, including resistance from U.S. GIs. As a central leader of the Answer Coalition, which is 20 years old this year, formed right after September 11, 2001, I want to be able to look at the recent history, the last 20 years on Iraq, on the Middle East, and put it into the perspective of anti-imperialism, anti-militarism, and the struggle for peace in the 21st century. Today, we'll start our show on the one-year anniversary of the lynching of Ahmed Arbery, which in many ways was the precursor event to the nationwide uprising against racism and against racist police terror that swept this country following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th. As you mentioned, Nicole, we're also going to talk about Trump's political return, the uprising in Haiti, the struggle for workers' rights, and of course, as I mentioned, we'll conclude the show today with the interview with Mohamed Morandi. But Esther, let's get started with the lynching. That's what it was of Ahmed Arbery. It was in many ways the precursor event, the signal, the catalyst, the trigger for what became a nationwide uprising against racism. It's so important for us to look back at the past year and to remember what actually happened to Ahmed Arbery, again, something that's not isolated in America, part of the long tradition of racist lynchings, long tradition of brutality. But what happened this year, or perhaps starting a year ago, was the nationwide uprising against racism, which was in many ways perhaps unprecedented. But let's get started. Yes, Brian. So by this time last year, uh, by the first week of March, the murder of Ahmad Aubrey, a 25-year-old aspiring home contractor, had already happened seven days earlier, but it would be nearly two months more before most of the country and world learned how he was shot to death while jogging near Brunswick, Georgia. And then weeks more would go by before the men seen on video shooting him were even arrested. So, so much about his murder and the way his murder was handled was really the kindling, as you mentioned, that would ignite last year's uprising against racism. That Ahmad, another unarmed black man, was doing the most natural thing, you know, jogging and exercising, enjoying some fresh air when he was murdered. And we would learn later that he was murdered by a former cop. So the man who shot the graphic video of his murder and who was later actually charged in connection with the killing was arrested just four days before George Floyd was choked to death on video by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. And so when you talk about it being the kindling, the ignition of last year's uprising against racism, it helps us to remember the close proximity of time between all these events. So his family had to appeal to the public, try to get national and media attention because the killers were just allowed to walk away. You know, two months later, they were still walking free. The family finally did get national attention. And at that point, we're talking about at the end of April. And then the video of his actual murder was released and went viral. And so only from the investigation by journalists, you know, not from the wheels of so-called justice, did the killers on the video, you know, a father and son, Gregory and Travis McMichael get arrested, and that's all the way in May. And then we learn that Gregory McMichael is a former cop in Glenn County, Georgia. And so the police who arrived on the scene just accepted Gregory McMichael's version of what happened in this killing. And so we learned the obvious injustice in this case went even deeper. During the two months after Ahmad was murdered and his killers walked free, the first prosecutor recused herself. And then a second said that the killers had actually acted legally under Georgia's citizen arrest and self-defense laws. And then that prosecutor recused himself. 
And then a third prosecutor was put on the case. So we all remember that at this time, the coronavirus uh, pandemic was also beginning to spread across the country. You know, lockdowns were being put in place. And so the marches for justice for Ahmad were actually the first ones we saw on TV with people wearing masks and, you know, carrying signs in Georgia. And as we learned more about the case, it just brought into sharp relief the injustice in the case. And just real quickly, you know, just to kind of summarize some of those, that a former cop and his son believed that they had a right to hunt and kill Ahmad, you know, as a criminal suspect and be the judge, jury, and executioner of him because he was seen looking at homes under construction in the neighborhood. Ahmad's family talked about how he was really interested in construction because that's what he was interested in doing. That's what he was, you know, aspiring to do as a profession. And that the video was needed to bring charges, that it took so long to bring any type of arrest in the case. And I think it struck a lot of us that in the Trump era, these types of vigilantes, these open racists, were given almost a license to be judge, jury, and executioner of Black people. And so, as I said, this was the first case that people became aware of, you know, uh, last year. And combined with the COVID deaths, lockdowns, the economic collapse that was happening at the time, that really fueled this uprising against racism that spread across the country and across the world. Well, one thing, Esther, it seems to me, is that we wouldn't possibly have known about the killing of Ahmed Arbery, but for other issues. In other words, the police weren't going to do anything. The killers, these white racist family members, father and son, father a cop, ex-cop, they all knew him. You know, Nicole, I mean... Again, the world learned about this months after he was killed. And then it was right before George Floyd. I mean, it's really important to remember the sequence here. So two months of cover up. Finally, the story comes out. Then, boom, a George Floyd is killed. Again, not that unusual because this happens all the time in America. But this time, the uprising in Minneapolis, like the uprising in 2014 in Ferguson, it didn't stop. It kept going. It kept going. And then it ignited a nationwide movement. I think you're right. It's important to recall exactly how everything was laid out. I mean, cops, prison systems and prison guards have been meeting out this kind of really disgusting, brutal, awful, you know, racist and classist vengeance on people for centuries. But this last year in 2020, that media actually started covering it. And the reason media started covering it is because people started to say, I'm not going to take this anymore. We're going out into the streets. We're showing people what is happening. We're now looking at Derek Chauvin, the cop who killed George Floyd, the cop who put his knee on George Floyd's neck and pushed his throat into the ground, into the cement for eight minutes and 46 seconds. His trial is starting this month. The only reason that charges were brought was because of people standing up in the streets and saying, we're not taking this anymore. This was not called for. Not only was this not called for, but this was racist and this was disgusting and this was brutal. And Brian, I'm seeing some articles that are talking about this trial and lawyers are saying, according to some of these articles I'm reading, that it's not necessarily very likely that Derek Chauvin will actually be convicted. And the reasons for those projections and those possibilities is because There have been a lot of even instances recently where suspects, people have died in custody after police have used what's called prone restraint, which is a knee on a neck or, you know, using your body weight on someone who is laying in the street. And there are cases where that's allowed if somebody's resisting, you know, if there's trouble, if somebody's, you know, trying to get out of their grip or whatever. But George Floyd was calm. George Floyd was cooperating. George Floyd was pulled over for no apparent reason. We have some audio that kind of goes over the details of his actual arrest. Yeah. So this is a report from CBS from May 27th, and it calls it new surveillance video. It was new as of May 27th, talking about actually what happened when he was first arrested. A new surveillance video obtained by CBS News from a restaurant nearby shows officers calmly detaining him. Attorney Benjamin Crump is representing Floyd's family. He was handcuffed long before... They took him to that car. And you can see his demeanor from the security video. They did not have to use this excessive lethal force that killed George Floyd. They did not have to do it. And that's why uh, simply terminating them is not enough. 
because black lives matter. I mean, Brian, I think that's exactly the case. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we saw. I'm going to play another clip from that same CBS report that talks about the Minneapolis police protocol that's in place. We took a look at the Minneapolis police training manual, and it says that neck restraints are only allowed if a suspect is resisting an officer's actions, and it is only allowed as a non-deadly hold if it's not restricting an airway. Yeah, well, that means they were outside the protocol for sure. You know, Esther, I want to play real quick two audio clips. One is from George Floyd's cousin, Tara Brown, and the other is from George Floyd's brother. I mean, when you think about the statements from his family members, and then we've just heard the CBS news report and what his lawyer, Benjamin Crump, said about the actual specifics of what happened, that he wasn't resisting, he was already subdued, he was handcuffed, he was in a car before they took him out. You can't but come to the conclusion that Derek Chauvin shouldn't be very hard to convict. Let's listen to George Floyd's cousin, Tara Brown. We need to see justice happen. Um, In this case, this was clearly murder. Um, We want to see them arrested. We want to see them charged. We want to see them convicted. They need to be convicted. It's quite clear. Listen to George Floyd's brother. We all seen it. Plain as day. Y'all in here with cameras for a reason, to record what's here so you can have it for later, so you can have proof of what happened today. And when you, when you post that footage on your, on your news station or whatever, you expect people to believe what you're posting and what you video was real, right? Why is it not that simple when somebody's getting videoed and getting murdered? Why is it not that simple? Exactly. So in the case of George Floyd, just like in the case of Ahmaud Arbery, Families in particular are asked to not believe their own lying eyes, right? Not to believe the facts that they understand as people with common sense. So this week, for example, Ahmaud Aubrey's mom filed a $1 million civil rights lawsuit alleging a vast conspiracy that enabled and protected the men charged with her son's murder. And in the complaint, she says that, you know, these people basically colluded together to protect these two men, Travis and Gregory McMichael. And so it's the same as the clips you just played of George Floyd's family. And the fact that families have to go to this extent to get justice, you know, is horrific. And it really points to not only a need for a change in the justice system or so-called justice system, but just a total just tear it apart and put it back together because obviously families aren't getting justice. So the only reason why these cases have gotten this far is because of the video evidence. And then if the evidence, you know, months later or a year later is going to be disputed. So we're all, like I said, being asked to not believe our lying eyes. Indeed. I think this is so important. And, you know, there's a debate in the movement. There are some people in the movement who say, well, look, we shouldn't support any reforms on police because if you do, then you're supporting the system of police. And the only thing we have to do is abolish the police. Well, I'm for abolishing the police. I'm for abolishing the system of mass incarceration. But for those on the left or so-called left or the progressive movement who say, by advocating for any reform, you're actually sanctioning the system. Well, the fact of the matter is without the video, without the body cameras, without some of this material, there would be impossible to get a conviction. It's almost impossible anyway. And the family members want convictions. That's the other thing. People say, well, we want to abolish the prisons. Well, yes, we do. But the cops who kill people every day, who kill black people, especially every day, black and brown people, I mean, they can't act with impunity. And right now they have impunity. If there's impunity, nothing stops. It'll just keep going and going and going. Anyway, we'll look at the Derek Chauvin trial again over the course of this week and next week. I know the ruling class is well aware that it was the acquittal of the cops who beat Rodney King in Los Angeles in 1992 when it was caught on video. That was back when video was first sort of a thing. And you could see this man, Rodney King, being beaten almost to death by five police officers. And they went to trial and they were acquitted as they normally are. But the people of Los Angeles they rose up and there was a four or five day rebellion. I mean, it was a massive rebellion, the biggest rebellion since the 60s. It was like Watts 
in that sense. And of course, the ruling class right now is well aware that if they acquit Derek Chauvin, the same thing is likely to happen. Maybe they'll try to find a way to give him a smaller penalty. If they say it's hard to convict him for first degree murder or second degree murder, they'll find some other thing. They can say, well, we did convict him, but then he'll get out of jail in two or three years. That's not enough. As we continue to follow the trial, Brian, we should also keep a watch on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was reintroduced in the House last week by Representative Karen Bass of California and Jerry Nadler of New York. And the act includes some reform measures for this issue of qualified immunity for police officers, which we've discussed. So we want to keep watch on that legislation, which they say will have face headwinds in the Senate. But if legislators, these lawmakers are really serious about addressing this issue that so shocked people and so horrified people that to the point that they took to the streets in the middle of a pandemic last year, they need to do something. So we have to keep watch on that legislation also. Sir, I'm glad you raised that because I wanted to add one more thing on here too. This just entire concept where it might be hard to convict Derek Chauvin when there's video evidence of this man sitting with his knee on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And there's in these various articles that I mentioned earlier and this legal analysis, well, some experts are saying criminal cases should always be more difficult. It reflects our commitment that nobody should go to jail unless the state can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed the wicked act with a wicked mind. Well, George Floyd was already restrained. He already had handcuffs on. He wasn't resisting. He was pleading for his life. He was saying, I can't breathe. And when they say criminal cases should always be more difficult, nobody should go to jail unless the state can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, then how do we have millions of people incarcerated? How do we have tens of thousands of people who we know at a minimum are innocent, who were convicted without fair trials, who didn't have proper evidence or various law enforcement agencies withheld that evidence? Even in two states, you can still convict people without a full jury. There's forced confessions even of young people. There's all of these horrendous cases. And of course, those are for poor people. That's the justice system, quote unquote, for poor people, for black people. Uh, When we, you know, when we look at even in prison, uh, one case that I will never be able to shake is Darren Rainey, who was a, a young man who was forced into a scalding 160 degree shower for two hours where he died from the burns. This was in a Florida jail. It was said after he died that his skin was literally falling off. His killers, the jail, the guards, they were never prosecuted. How can there not be, how can you not prosecute somebody who forced, and this was not their first time doing this. These killers had done this to eight other people. Um, Some of them were promoted. How can you not prosecute people who literally boiled a man to death? Also, the guy who was boiled to death, he was serving a two-year sentence for the possession of cocaine. So if you can convict Darren Rainey for possessing cocaine, then you can for sure convict these killers, this Derek Chauvin and these others for, you know, live on video, you know, completely choking someone until they died. Walter, let's turn to another story. The is it the resurrection of Donald Trump? Well, I mean, it's not an exactly a resurrection, but it's certainly an attempt to rehabilitate Donald Trump. He says he's coming back. He was at the CPAC, Conservative Political Action conference in Florida. It's usually held here in the D.C. area, but now he's in Florida, so it's in Florida. Anyway, what's your takeaway? Yeah, well, Trump's political goal with this speech, this really high-profile speech, the most high-profile one he's given since the January 6th assault on the Capitol building, was to reassert his grip over the Republican Party. Uh, He's locked in an intense battle with Mitch McConnell, the top Senate leader in the Republican, over just that question. There's divided opinion among the Republican political elites. There are indications that he still retains support of the vast majority of Republican voters, though. And yeah, and that's the big question. I mean, what is the future of Donald Trump and Trumpism? Will it remain the dominant faction of the Republican Party. So a lot of what Donald Trump said at CPAC was a very long speech. It was over an hour long. I think it was about an hour and a half long. It was part, you know, right wing political rally, you know, these talking points against socialism, against immigrants, you know, in favor of the police, blah, blah, blah. But there are also some important, you know, maybe announcements that Trump made there. 
One, he distanced himself from the threat to form a third party, a quote-unquote patriot party. He said that he never made that threat. I don't buy that. I think that he's now backing off from it because it's no longer necessary that his position in the Republican Party is actually quite good. Uh, he also teased the possibility of running for president a third time. He said, maybe I'll beat them a third time, alluding to you know his false claims about the 2020 election being rigged. He talked about that at length. And then... And then he also made it clear that one of his goals is revenge. And so we've got a clip here. It's about a minute long from his speech. And I think you'll see what I mean. The Democrats don't have grandstanders like Mitt Romney, Little Ben Sass, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey. And in the House, Tom Rice. South Carolina, Adam Kinzinger, Dan Newhouse, Anthony Gonzalez, that's another beauty, Fred Upton, Jamie Herrera Butler, Peter Meyer, John Katko, David Valadeo, and of course the warmonger, a person that loves seeing our troops fighting, Liz Cheney. How about that? The good news is, in her state, she's been censured, and in her state, her poll numbers have dropped faster than any human being I've ever seen. So hopefully they'll get rid of her with the next election. Get rid of them all. Yeah, it's a personality cult. I mean, it's really funny. Mitt Romney, I mean, he did have a bad fall over the weekend. I don't know if it's coinciding with the revenge claim. I don't think so. But nonetheless... He's going after Republicans. The focus there is the Republican Party, the struggle over the leadership of the Republican Party. That's exactly what happened in 2010. Really, it was 2009. Obama proposed the Affordable Care Act, which was Mitt Romney's program when he was governor of Massachusetts, a Republican program to give everyone health care, but vis-a-vis the privatization of health care completely and making everyone subscribe to an insur- a private capitalist insurance company. The Republicans then called that communism and the Tea Party was formed and the Tea Party came to all of those town hall meetings with guns and labeled Obama a, a serious communist and socialist. And they were going to take revenge against anybody in the Republican Party who didn't stand up to the takeover of America by communists because they had what later became the Affordable Care Act. Esther, I mean, you've been following politics closely. This drove the Republican Party far to the right. I mean, it was already very far to the right. It was the white right party, but even further to the right. Anyway, what's your thought about Trump? I mean, he's facing many criminal prosecutions, potentially civil prosecutions. I mean, do you think he can hold on to the Republican Party? I'm not sure about that. I guess what I'm looking for this week, of course, we've all discussed how this far right conspiracy group QAnon believes that March 4th is a key date when Trump will uh, reemerge and come back into power. They believe that he has mass support in the military and there's going to be a military coup. I even heard some people interviewed at CPAC who were supporting and kind of advocating or touting the military coup in Myanmar and saying that that's basically what needs to happen here. So we're dealing with a real fringe, really cult. I think that that was the right word, a real kind of cult assembly around Trump. And at CPAC, he was just kind of basking in that. And it's not really clear to me the extent to which the fringe of the party is going to be able to continue to lead it. And as Walter said, this is a match between McConnell, who is far right, I think, anyway, and the far, far right. So your guess is as good as mine. Walter, as Esther was speaking, that really reminded me of a joke that our friend comedian Randy Credico makes. There's a fine line between the right, the ultra right, and the third Reich. When you look at the breakdown of what's going on at CPAC, and also it's a personality cult around Donald Trump. It is far, far right. But Donald Trump is not being ousted by the Republican Party establishment right now. In fact, even if they would like to rid themselves of him, they're not doing that. 
Yeah, and I think that they would absolutely like to rid themselves of Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is not, you know, one of them. He doesn't come from the professional political class. He comes from the ruling class, certainly. I mean, Donald Trump is a wealthy real estate capitalist, but he does not have the common interests of the ruling class of the Wall Street corporate elite in mind. I mean, the one thing that's a priority for Donald Trump is Donald Trump. And that leads him to make decisions that are actually quite bad for the rest of the ruling class in some situations, not in all, far from all. Let's turn to another topic. The people of Haiti, with this long, proud history of resistance, of rebellion, of revolution, in the streets, we've been covering the uprising for the recent weeks. Walter and Esther, real quick, let's just bring people up to date on what's going on in Haiti. That's right, Brian. Uh, massive demonstrations are continuing uh, to take place on a regular basis throughout Haiti. The Haitian people are rejecting a power grab by the current president, the illegitimate president, who is supported by the United States represents the latest iteration of this long line of corrupt puppet leaders who rule Haiti essentially on behalf of major U.S. corporations. For instance, you know, there was a recent article in a, in a fantastic publication called Haiti Liberté about how Moise has given, you know, a sweetheart deal to the Coca-Cola Corporation to grow stevia to sweeten their drinks. I mean, the people of Haiti are completely fed up with this style of rule. And as has happened many, many times throughout history, are rising up. There's terrible repression. The government, the ruling party loyalists are resorting increasingly to essentially death squad violence to put down the opposition. But we see this movement continuing. The Biden administration has said through the State Department that they think that the president's extension of his own term a legal unconstitutional extension of his own term is legitimate. So the U.S. is sticking with this guy who's functioning as a dictator in the eyes of so many of the Haitian people. We'll see what happens there, but it's absolutely something that's of great significance to, I think, anybody who cares about justice. Right, Walter. And here in the United States, those expressing solidarity with Haiti are really bringing attention to the Biden administration and how they are continuing to prop up Moise and also relating this to how they are continuing these illegal sanctions and blockade against Venezuela. So when it comes to this hemisphere, just like when it comes to Iran, the Biden administration is really carrying on these same imperialist policies that are really subjugating people around the world to taking away their right to food, their right to fuel, and really creating a lot of misery, you know, with our tax dollars. So this is an issue of Haiti being, you know, we are Haiti, you know, we are Venezuela. And, you know, as socialists, we have to seek justice, not only for people here in the United States, but around the world. And the Biden administration wants to appoint what we call black faces in high places and, you know, have a young poet at his inauguration, you know, to kind of signify his solidarity with black people. He wants to shore that base up at home. But at the same time, while he's continuing to administer, you know, death and suffering to people, black and brown people around the globe. I want to encourage people to learn as much as they can about the resistance movement in Haiti. You can go to the website Haiti Liberté. That's one important site. Liberation News. Walter, you are the editor there at Liberation News. A lot of coverage on Haiti. Also, if you have a moment, go back and look at Frederick Douglass's amazing speech delivered on January 2nd, 1893 at the World's Fair. Frederick Douglass, who everyone knows as a, an esteemed spokesperson for the struggle and a leader in the struggle against slavery inside the United States, he was also the U.S. ambassador to Haiti from 1891 to 93. And he makes it clear in this speech that the U.S. has failed to forgive Haiti for daring to rise up, for daring to end slavery, for daring to have a revolution. And it just reminds us how the U.S. government, the U.S. capitalist government, refuses to acknowledge and never forgives those people around the world who actually dare to rise up against the empire. So you have Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, the people in Iran, 
all over the world where people have risen up, have struggled, have declared their freedom and independence from the empire. The empire finds a way using occupations or economic sanctions, covert operations, one way or another to end that revolutionary process. I want to use that as a segue for an interview we did a couple days ago with Professor Mohammed Morandi. He teaches at the University of Tehran. When we talk with Mohammed about why the U.S. continues to sanction Iran, refuse to enter into good faith negotiations with Iran, kill people in Syria who it says are Iranian-backed militias, he puts his finger on really the nub of the problem, which is the American government has refused to accept and refuses to forgive the Iranian people for daring to rise up and overthrow a U.S. puppet dictator imposed on the country by the CIA in 1979, that that really is the nub of the confrontation. But this confrontation requires our attention, especially those who believe in peace, who oppose economic sanctions, and who, of course, must organize and oppose any new major war with Iran, which is always an ever-present danger. Let's go now to our interview with Mohammed Morandi. We're joined from Tehran by Mohammed Morandi. Mohammed is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. Mohammed, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Brian. Thank you for joining us. I know it's late where you are, and I want to tell you how grateful we are that you were able to make some time for us. Here in the United States, we're reading headlines about what might or might not happen with the United States coming back into or attempting to come back into the JCPOA, the Iran Nuclear Arms Agreement. Iran seems to be saying to the United States and to the world, we've had it. We're not going to continue to give, give, give. You have to come back into compliance, fully into compliance, or the agreement doesn't really exist, or at least it doesn't exist for the United States. Just bring us up to date on what's happening. What is the Iranian government prepared to do? And I'm speaking specifically about the additional protocol as part of the agreement regarding IAEA, that's the International Atomic Energy Agency inspections. Just bring us up to date. Well, I think what you said is pretty accurate and that Iran is saying that it will no longer accept the United States stonewalling and imposing sanctions on the country and failing to abide by its commitments within the nuclear deal. And we all know that after the nuclear deal was signed between Iran and the P5 plus one, under Obama, the United States, despite the fact that Iran abided by all of its commitments, the United States did not abide by its commitments. And Obama intentionally tried to do as little as possible. And I think the mistake that the Iranians made was that they immediately, after signing the deal, they went and did everything that they were supposed to do. And Obama decided that since Iran is doing its part of the bargain, there's no need for the Americans to rush. So until the very last day of Obama's presidency, the United States continued to only partially fulfill its obligations. And of course, the Europeans do whatever the Americans say. Then, of course, Trump came and ultimately he tore the agreement and began bullying other countries and forcing them to abide by his illegal sanctions. But the Iranians continue to abide by the nuclear deal because the Europeans promised that they do something about it. After a year, the Europeans did absolutely nothing as expected, and, uh, or at least as I expected. And then the Iranians began to decrease their commitments in five stages. So after, let's say, committing themselves fully for a very long period of time and seeing no response from the Europeans or the Americans, the Iranians have, you know, they gradually decreased their commitments. And until yesterday, the Iranians continued to abide by some of their commitments within the framework of the JCPOA. One of them is, of course, implementing the additional protocol, which gives 
the IAA, extraordinary access to Iranian nuclear sites and uh, sites that are linked to the nuclear program. So after Biden came to power, you know, I never thought Biden would implement the nuclear deal. But in any case, some in Iran were hopeful that he would. He didn't do anything. And as we speak, he continues to use Trump sanctions and he's continuing with the maximum pressure campaign to target women, children, and the vulnerable citizens of Iran. People have died, of course, as a result. Certain medicines are difficult to find or too expensive. So cancer patients have died and and that sort of thing. And of course, jobs have been lost, families ruined because of the U.S. sanctions. So the Biden continues to target women and children like Trump. And so the Iranians are now saying enough is enough. And that since the United States and the Europeans are violating every single commitment that they made within the framework of the nuclear deal. And of course, when the deal was negotiated, we have to always keep in mind that Biden was the vice president at the time. So he was a part of the administration that agreed to this deal. So the Iranians seeing that the Americans and the Europeans are violating all of their commitments, they're now saying that we are no longer going to abide by any of our commitments either. So we're going to take things back to the beginning, balance the playing field, zero, zero now. Instead of Iran implementing and the other side in noncompliance, Iran will discontinue abiding by its commitments in order to put pressure on the United States uh, and the Europeans to make a move. Mohammed, the irony of this situation is that the United States and the other countries who are the signatories to the Iran nuclear arms deal, the JCPOA, but the United States in particular is the got the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. It uses nuclear energy at home for domestic energy use. It develops nuclear power to build nuclear weapons. It has deployed nuclear weapons all over the world. It's the only country in the world that's ever used nuclear weapons against human beings in a direct assault that was in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And here you have a country like Iran, which everyone agrees, and certainly it's certified by the IAEA, Iran does not have nuclear weapons. They are facing regional adversaries like Israel, which is the primary ally of the United States in the Middle East. And Israel is not part of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It does have nuclear weapons. It refuses to allow inspections. It refuses to acknowledge the reality, the truth of its nuclear weapons. And here you have Iran, a large country, you know, larger than France, a country that has a large educated population, a country that has, you know, ample resources. It has a lot going for it, in other words. And yet Iran agreed to these very intrusive nuclear inspections, really, if the shoe was on the other foot, Americans would consider, well, Iran does not have a right to carry out on-the-spot inspections of American nuclear facilities. They don't have the right to just show up wherever. And yet, in the American media, it's still being portrayed that Iran is the bad guy. Iran is the aggressor. And I want you to just, you know, sort of put for our, especially the American audience, put some of these things into that framework. And also, obviously, the Iranians being a country that was enduring huge sanctions was trying to do something to relieve the sanctions pressure, the war, the economic war against Iran and Iranians. So they went along with this program. But there must be a great deal of bitterness in the country by this stage. Well, as a person who survived two chemical attacks during the war that Saddam Hussein carried out against Iran with U.S. and European support. And we know that those chemical weapons were provided to Saddam Hussein by the Europeans and the Americans, both the ability to produce the weapons as well as the intelligence to use the weapons and the political cover to get away with using these chemical weapons. Uh, All of these were, you know, done by the Europeans and the Americans. So when the United States and its allies speak about human rights or justice or 
a threat from Iran. No one here takes this seriously. And with regards to nuclear weapons, Iran is a very advanced country, by far the most advanced country in this part of the world. And uh, Iran's military capabilities and its indigenous military hardware, as we've seen, is very effective. And uh, Iran is very advanced in high-tech fields as well as in artificial intelligence. And if Iran wanted to develop a nuclear weapon, it would have done so years ago. It is well within Iran's capability to do so. So Iran has chosen not to develop a nuclear weapon. Otherwise, Iran would have had such weapons by now. In fact, it would have had it a long time ago. The Americans, I think, know this quite well. And the nuclear program is basically an excuse to contain Iran, to punish Iran, to hurt Iran, because the United States really never forgave Iran for the revolution in 1979. That is the root of the problem. The root of the problem is that the Shah was in the American camp. He was an obedient leader, and Iran is a key country in this, the most important country in West Asia. And uh, the Americans have, have lost their foothold in the country, and they continue to fear that this will spread to other countries as well. And of course, it is spreading, and that's largely because of the policies of the United States, whether in Afghanistan or in Iraq or Yemen or Syria or Lebanon. The United States has caused populations to turn against it in these different countries and for these populations to move closer to Iran. But having said that, the Iranians, they still are willing to find a solution. And despite the fact that the Americans have violated the agreement and despite the fact that the Americans are targeting ordinary civilians and citizens, the Iranians have still not left the agreement. And they're saying that if the United States implements the deal, Iran will too. But the Americans are now saying, we want more. So they negotiated a deal, and now they say, no, we want more than what we had. So that's not something that the Iranians will accept. That's, you know, that would, if the Iranians accept that, that would be appeasement. And appeasement, as you know, invites, is an invitation to more sanctions. In other words, if the Americans see that through sanctions, they can get more than what they agreed to, that means that in future, they can do it again and again, and that every time the Americans want something, they'll just flip a switch and impose new sanctions, and the story starts all over again. So the Iranians are not going to accept any changes to the nuclear deal. They're not going to accept any extensions to the nuclear deal. They're not going to connect the nuclear deal to regional issues or Iran's defense capabilities because the Iranians know they cannot withdraw their support for their regional allies, because that would mean the rise of ISIS and al-Qaeda, groups that the Americans and their allies supported in Syria, especially in, in Yemen. So we know from Jake Sullivan's email to Hillary Clinton, February the 12th, 2012, that he said very clearly that al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. That was, you know, very near the beginning of what was going on in Syria. We know that ISIS was a part of al-Qaeda, which later broke away. So the Iranians know that any withdrawal from the region and the withdrawal of support from their allies would simply mean the rise of ISIS and al-Qaeda again. Or, you know, if Iran was to negotiate its defense capabilities, that would leave Iran vulnerable to American strikes. And uh, the Americans would use that capability to get their way with Iran. So when the Americans have surrounded Iran with military bases, when the Americans and their allies have been cooperating with extremists, there's absolutely no way that the Iranians are going to negotiate their national security or the national security of their allies. So the Iranians are saying, look, you negotiated the nuclear deal. You agreed to it, especially Biden being the vice president of the administration that negotiated the deal. We're willing to implement it. But the United States is not. Yet you see that the Western media, Western think tanks, Western pundits speak as if it's Iran that's to blame for this whole situation. 
Mohammed, final question. Again, Americans are told that Iran is a dictatorship, there's no democracy, and yet anyone who pays any attention will know that that's just completely not the case. And not only are there, you know, robust political discourse and debates in Iran within the Iranian parliament, within society, within Iranian media. But there's also, especially when it comes to an issue like this, where, you know, it's a very big and hard decision by any Iranian authority to enter into an agreement like the JCPOA, and there's going to be divided sentiment about it in the first place. And then to have the United States fail to live up to its obligations and, in fact, do just the opposite. After Iran was in compliance, maintained its compliance, the United States government and its allies in Europe, other imperialist countries, other imperialist governments, did everything to try to destroy Iran. They didn't succeed, but they did the opposite of what they pledged to. You can see why any attempt to come to any agreement now, some halfway measure even with the United States, will provoke a lot of different opinions. And I'm looking at an article from Al Jazeera. It came out February 22nd. Here's their words. Again, you can, their words are their words, but quote, hardline Iranian lawmakers say an agreement reached recently between the government and the United Nations nuclear watchdog is quote, illegal. And the president, meaning the president of Iran must be punished for it. In a public vote on Monday, an overwhelming majority of lawmakers voted to send a report by the National Security and Foreign Policy Commission on the agreement reached with the International Atomic Energy Agency to the judiciary for review. The report asserts that the deal struck on Sunday between the IAEA and the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran constitutes a clear violation of a law passed by Parliament in December. As per the law, the government of President Hassan Rouhani must stop the voluntary implementation of the additional protocol, which gives broad authorities to IAEA inspectors from Tuesday. So let's just understand if we can, Mohammed. I know this is an ongoing, undoubtedly an ongoing debate that will be taking place in Iran. Officials in Iran came to an agreement to allow some parts of the protocol the additional protocol to continue in terms of videotaping nuclear sites, but all of that videotape was going to be held securely under Iranian jurisdiction and not be transferred to the IAEA until it's determined that the U.S. and the other countries are actually coming back into compliance. But anyway, is there anything you want to say or help us understand what this initiative in parliament might mean? Well, a couple of things I think are important. One is the whole narrative of Iran being a dictatorship. There's a strong paradox that we always see in narratives on Iran and the West. One is that Iran is a regime, you know, whenever they want to speak in derogatory terms, they call it a regime. It's a regime, it's a dictatorship, it's despotic, it's ruthless, it's unpopular, it's hated. People want to overthrow it, and so on. It's reactionary, it's backward, and a host of other things that they say regularly in the media. Yet at the same time, this so-called regime that is constantly imploding, or on the verge of imploding, is a growing threat, it's a rising danger. And this is a, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have Iran as a growing power on the one hand and on the verge of imploding on the other. And the same is true with regards to the narrative of it being a dictatorship. On the one hand, it's a dictatorship, but on the other hand, they divide you know, politicians into moderates and hardliners. And uh, what uh, they would like to call the democratic process in Western countries here, it's a struggle for power. You know, They don't call it a struggle for power in Europe or North America because that doesn't sound very civilized. When it's Iran, it's always a struggle for power. It's hardliners versus moderates. But, you know, even if it's a struggle for power and there's no shooting, and there are moderates and hardliners, as they call them, although I don't consider these terms to be very 
useful at all. But that means that this is not some monolithic state where one person talks and everyone listens. Yet, while they use this terminology, which is inconsistent with their claim of Iran being some despotic dictatorship, again, they like to have it both ways. They have it both ways. There's a constant struggle for power, but it's a dictatorship where there are no dissenting voices. You know, this is something that Americans, ordinary Americans, have to take note of. Just as they have to take note of the fact that on the one hand, you have this narrative of Iran constantly on the verge of imploding, yet on the other hand, it's a rising threat to the world, apparently. The whole world apparently is being threatened by Iran, from my understanding. In addition to that, I'd like to you know make one final point, and that is that last year when Trump murdered General Soleimani, the person who more than anyone else in this world was responsible for the defeat of ISIS and al-Qaeda in Syria and Iraq. And it was not the Americans that defeated ISIS or al-Qaeda. The Americans continue to give al-Qaeda support. And with regards to ISIS, there are serious questions about American support for them because ISIS is using the area occupied by the United States and Syria to carry out attacks on Syrian soldiers. And they've just killed a few soldiers a few days ago. But in any case, the person who led the war against ISIS and al-Qaeda, who was murdered by the Americans, General Soleimani, when his body was taken to Qazimain in Iraq, the funeral procession went through three Iraqi cities. In each city, there were hundreds of thousands, and this was not the capital, at least hundreds of thousands of people in each city were, in Iraq, were attending the funeral. And then in Iran, you know, which is a much larger country with larger cities, millions of people. And in Tehran, it was unprecedented, the crowds. And this is something that even the Western media, which rarely acknowledges anything in an objective matter in Iran, even they had to acknowledge. So the point is that if Iran, if the so-called regime, as they like to call it, is so unpopular, why was the funeral of General Soleimani so massive in, in the different cities, both in Iraq and in Iran. I think that if ordinary Americans just take these three points that I pointed out into consideration, they would have to draw a conclusion that is very different from what the American media and American think tanks and the American government and American pundits and elites are presenting to them. And that is Iran is a very powerful country. It has legitimacy among its population. It is a strong country. It is much more open and democratic than many countries in the world, and by far more open than countries in our neighborhood, despite constant U.S. attempts to undermine the country, despite U.S. regime change operations carried out against Iran. So, you know, when in the United States, the accusation of Russian involvement in the 2016 election, which has never been proven and I doubt is true in any way or form. But look at the reaction in the United States and how the opposition to Trump, whether you like him or not, tried to delegitimize him because of the alleged Russian influence. Yet the United States tries to undermine Iranian society and the Iranian government every single day of the year, openly, through media, through propaganda, through sanctions, through any means possible. Under these circumstances, we still have this sort of debate, this sort of diversity in Iranian politics, even though it's described in a demeaning way in the West. So what I'm trying to say is that Americans should uh, recognize that the United States is not going to succeed, and the United States is not telling its population the truth, and neither is the corporate media or the political establishment. And it would be to the benefit of the United States to end this ongoing aggression against ordinary Iranians because the Americans have already lost almost $10 trillion in this region over the last two decades. And with the economic crisis in the United States as it is, this is not something that the Americans can continue for much longer. Thank you very much. That was the voice of Mohammed Mirandi. Mohammed Mirandi 
joined us from Tehran. He is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.